And good morning, church. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Really glad to be with you this morning. Today is the last sermon on the book of Colossians. So we've taken the fall and we've been walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossia. It's a great book. We've been seeing, we've been seeing how Jesus transforms our identity, how Jesus transforms us. And it's been, I've loved digging into this book and wrestling through it and seeing how Jesus meets people where they're at and he transforms them and leads them to where he desires them to be. That is in God's presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And so we've been seeing Jesus meeting his people, transforming his people. And in fact, that's what we see here in the last passage. As my wife Brittany read that passage, you may have been thinking, why are all these names listed? This is kind of an uninspiring end to a very inspired book. At least that's what I thought about it the first couple times that I read it, but I have to preach it, so I had to continue to sit and think about it, right? I had to say, okay, why are all these names in here? What do they mean? Do they have any purpose and meaning for us? And I think they have a lot of purpose and meaning for us. I think God wants to use these names and use these last couple verses of the book of Colossians to remind us that there's good news for everything, that there's good news for you, and there's good news for me. We are people just like the people listed ordinary people transformed by an extraordinary God, we can go out into the world with purpose and meaning and make a difference. And we do it together. We do it as a community of people. As I was trying to think about the illustration here of this book, um, what came to mind was the Council of Elrond. How many of you, when I say that, you know what I'm saying? Put your hands up nice and high. The Council of Elrond. Okay, look around. We know who the nerds are. Um, <laughs> the Council of Elrond. It's from Lord of the Rings. How many of you know Lord of the Rings? We'll probably have a few more hands on that one. Okay. The Council of Elrond is a little story in Lord of the Rings where they need to get this ring, right? This ring has to go to Mordor. It has to be destroyed because the ring represents evil and the ring has evil. And so they need to get this ring to Mordor to be destroyed. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm going to take two minutes of your time and to skip out of the text here and you'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute. We're going to watch a two-minute clip from Lord of the Rings and we'll bring it back to Colossians, okay? Oh, that's so epic. I love it. Where are we going? Uh, he has no idea. Um, that, I think, captures well for us what's happening here in Colossians, believe it or not. That's a modern example, a modern picture of what's happening here. Frodo, this, this short man, steps up to take on this impossible task. Church history would tell us that Paul was probably a short man, and he stepped up to take on this impossible task of bringing the gospel to the nations, to different cultures, to different languages. And he had a team of people who, like we just saw, stood up and said, we will go. We will do this. If the gospel, if the good news is to go out into the world and be good news for everything, we can't do it alone. We need each other. There's good news for us this morning. It's good news for you individually, that Jesus is the head of the church, as Colossians 1.18 says. He is the head of the church, the body. Look at that with me quickly. Jesus, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head. He calls the shots. He makes the decisions. We are linked to him, and we are the body, the church. And we are in this together as they journeyed off on this mission, this quest, or this thing, as the guy didn't know what to call because he wasn't paying enough attention. As we head off into this great thing called life, there's good news for us, and that's we have one another. 
And we have a great God who transforms us, and he gives each of us different gifts. He gives each of us different abilities. What I love in that scene, in that video, is that they all bring a little something different to the table, right? The one elf thought he brought intelligence, but his friend ruled him out. Um, so hopefully someone else had intelligence. But someone else brought an a axe. Someone else had a bow and arrow. Someone else had a sword. In the church, we all have different gifts, we all have different strengths. We all have different blind spots and weaknesses. And praise the Lord, he puts us into a body where our gifts can complement one another, where, where, when we can have one another's back. And so today, as we close out the book of Colossians, I think Paul wants, I, I think Paul intentionally is putting these people in here. For one, he's putting them in here because it's a letter written to a church. Christianity is personal. It's relational. Our foundational documents are letters written to people. And we know that because Paul's calling out specific people by name. He's writing to the church in Colossia, and he's telling them to greet one another on behalf of another one of their brothers in Christ, a church leader. And so, Scripture is relational. God's book is relational. The first two chapters of Colossians are highly doctrinal. They're highly theological. Paul is trying to train the church to see heresy and to combat heresy with truth. And then the second two chapters, chapter 3 and 4, are highly relational. So the first two are theological in nature. The last two chapters are relational in nature. And here, Paul just kind of, he, he closes out the book by being extremely relational. And so I think we need to make that observation that Christianity is a relational endeavor. God has put us in a family. He is the head of the church. We are the body. We need one another. We each have different gifts, different strengths. And so Paul, for one, he's writing to them, because it's a relational endeavor. But two, I think, I think this has been preserved by the Holy Spirit for us to encourage us, to remind us that each of us brings something different to the table. And what we bring is needed by our brothers and sisters in order to fulfill the gospel, to, to proclaim the gospel. Jesus fulfilled the gospel. He is the gospel, okay? But for us to bring the gospel into the world, for us to experience the gospel, for us to have a full experience of the gospel, for us to really taste and see that Jesus is good news for everything, we need one another desperately. And rather than judging people because they're not like us, we need to see one another um, in light of how God has wired them and celebrate how they're different than us because it's a good thing that God has put us in a family where everyone is different. So what I want to do here is just walk through this passage and I'm going to do a quick profile of the 11 people named by Paul. He closed out this letter by naming 11 people. There at the Council of Elrond, they had a council of nine or a, or a fellowship of nine. Here we have a fellowship of 11. So I'm going to do a quick profile of these 11 people, and then we're going to talk about us at the end. What does this mean for us? How does this apply to us? So starting with the first one, Tychicus. Verse 7 starts out by Paul naming Tychicus. Tychicus, who is Tychicus? The passages on the screen are other references in Scripture that will tell you about Tychicus. As I go through this, I'm not going to turn to all of the passages that reference the people that are in this letter. I'm only going to look at what this portion says about them, but they're up there for you to reference on your own. So you can jot those down and you can go and cross-reference and check and make sure that I'm not um, teaching you something false. Tychicus, I'd name him the faithful. That's the profile of Tychicus. Paul says in verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a faithful brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage 
your hearts. And Paul, so Tychicus was with Paul. We see in Acts chapter 20 that he was in Ephesus in a riot with Paul, and he was one of Paul's traveling buddies. He was, he was faithful to Paul. God transformed Paul and sent, he, his name was Saul. He was a Jewish leader, a persecutor of the church, and then he met Jesus, and Jesus transformed Paul and set sent Paul out now as an apostle to proclaim the good news. And so Paul is in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus in Acts 19 and 20. You can read about this. He's in that city proclaiming the gospel, and and a group of people come around him. He forms a team. There's people who say, we believe this Jesus is the Messiah. We want to give our lives to him. And so they banded together. They formed a council. They formed a group. They formed a team. They said, we need one another. Let's engage this spiritual battle together. And Tychicus was one of those guys. And we see through the passages referenced in here in Colossians chapter 4, 7, and 8 that he's faithful. He's by Paul's side. He's the one that Paul sent ahead to the church in Colossia to bring them the letter and to encourage them. So Paul here is in jail. And Tychicus is, uh, actually, we don't know if he's in jail here in this setting. Um, We'll get to who is in jail with him in just a minute. He sends, he writes this letter to the church in Colossia. He gives it to Tychicus, and he says, Tychicus, bring this to the Colossians. Bring the word to the Colossians so that they would have proper theology and proper understanding of the relational nature of the church. And Tychicus is faithful to do it. If Tychicus doesn't do his job, we lose the book of Colossians. We don't have it in our Bibles to read and study and to learn more about Jesus. So Tychicus, his profile is one of these faithful people. Some of you are these kind of people that if someone asks you to do something, you do it. They can trust that you will follow through because you are the faithful type. That's what we see here in Tychicus. He's a faithful, a beloved brother and a faithful minister, a fellow servant. Paul entrusts this letter to a guy on his team to bring it to the church and to encourage the church. Thank you to those of you who have been transformed by Jesus and you are the faithful. You're the type who if somebody asks you to do something, you will follow through and do it. If that's you, you may feel like it's always behind the scenes and and maybe there's not a whole lot of um, excitement and flash with that. Thank you for serving faithfully. We need these people in the church. God's word preserves for us a man, an example to look at of what it looks like to be faithful, to go ahead, to do what you're asked, to to serve, and to faithfully continue to do it. That's Tychicus. The next one, Onesimus. This is in verse 9. And with him, so Tychicus and Onesimus are together. They're sent by Paul to the church in Colossia together both to encourage that church to bring this letter there. And here's what Paul says about Onesimus. He is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. And the two of these together, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul's saying, while I'm in prison, I'm writing this. And here's the letter that you're to read to help you understand theologically and the theological and the relational nature of the church. And then they're going to tell you some additional things about what God is doing here where we are in our prison. And so he sends the two of these men to the church in Colossia, and Tychicus is the faithful. Onesimus is the convert. Onesimus is the guy with the crazy testimony. Some of you grew up in the church and you feel like you don't have a great story, a testimony to share. You're like, I was born in the church, I grew up in the church, I ran the pews of the church, I 
you know, I've just always been a Christian. I've known Jesus my whole life. There's, there's no dramatic before and after story, and I don't have a great testimony. That could be Tychicus, although Tychicus probably did have a great story. But some of us grew up in the church, and oftentimes we don't feel like we have a great story. Um, before I move on to Onesimus, I need, just need to stop there. If that's you, if you feel like, I grew up in the church, I've kind of always known Jesus, I don't have a great story, continue to press into the gospel and believe the gospel. You have an incredible story because every single day you are forgiven and redeemed and loved and empowered by Jesus. That's an incredible story. doesn't matter if you don't have a dramatic before and after story like Onesimus. The fact that God continually redeems and uses you is an incredible story, so share it. Invite people into your life. Share your story. Proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You have a great story. It may be different than Onesimus's, but it's a great story. So Onesimus's story, he's the convert. He's, he's the one who does have this radical story, this radical before and after story. And you can learn about that in the book of Philemon, specifically verses 10 through 20. Onesimus is a slave. He's, he's owned by Philemon as a slave, and he's working for Philemon. And I don't have enough time to dig into the slavery culture of the first century, but Philemon owns Onesimus, Onesimus is his slave, and Onesimus essentially rips Philemon off. He steals from him, from best that we can tell by the story in Philemon and church history. He reaches, uh, he, 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 um, he rips off Philemon, his owner, his boss essentially. You could think of it, him as a boss, an employer, rather than a slave and slave owner because the cultural context for this was more similar to an employee having an employer. Um, it, it, an employer having an employee. So Onesimus essentially rips off his employer and runs away. He leaves. And on this journey, he meets Jesus. We don't know where he ran, but wherever he went to, he encountered God's church. He likely encountered Paul and the band of disciples in the city of Ephesus. And so Onesimus is this runaway slave, this, this thief, and he meets Jesus' people. He meets the body, the church. He becomes a Christian. His life is transformed from a, from a stealing runaway slave to now all of a sudden he's in the church. And the church tells him to go back to Philemon, his owner, and to go back and to serve and to work his job. And, to, and Paul actually in Philemon, he says, if, if Onesimus owes you anything from what he stole from you, I will personally repay it. That's what the gospel does. The gospel, the gospel allows us to humble ourselves before people and to say, um, there may be some injustice going on here. I don't think there was as much injustice going on here between Philemon and Onesimus as we think of in, in our modern slavery culture. But even if there is injustice, the gospel humbles us to say, I'm going to forgive even those who are doing wrong. I'm going to return and I'm going to pay back what I owe or what I sold. That means that if your employer is ripping you off, what do you do as an employee? Do you steal from them and do you justify doing bad work? No, the gospel would say you humble yourselves and you serve and you serve and you serve for the glory of God and the hopeful good of another. And so Onesimus is transformed. He's the convert. That's his story. Maybe some of you in here this morning, you have a radical story of transformation, that you were running away and Jesus met you and he transformed your life. Praise God for that. Share that story. Encourage the church 
with your story. That's who Onesimus is. That's what we see in Onesimus. The next one, Aristarchus, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So Aristarchus is in prison with Paul. Aristarchus is the companion. That's, that's how I understand Aristarchus. He's, for one, right here in verse 10, my fellow prisoner greets you. He's a companion with Paul in prison. But there's multiple references there up on the screen of when Aristarchus was with Paul in riots, in prison, in trials, in hardships. Aristarchus is a guy who was with Paul no matter what. Whether, whether the going was great or whether the going, going was tough, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 that he has learned the secret to be content in all things, whether in plenty or in little. Whether circumstances are great and, and, and material possessions abound or whether physical circumstances are bad and physical possessions are lacking, he's learned the secret to be content. Aristarchus learned this with Paul. He sat with Paul in the midst of trial. He didn't abandon ship. He didn't leave the mission of God to make disciples. He didn't leave his brother in Christ because things got hard. Sometimes in the church, we're tempted to ditch or to abandon our brothers and sisters when things get hard. Aristarchus gives us a profile of a man who's a companion. He's there. He sits with Paul in prison. He doesn't say, well, this is looking kind of fishy, and this it doesn't have my earthly well-being in mind, so therefore, I'll see you later, Paul. I'm going to go find a real job where I won't get thrown in prison. He says, I'm with you, Paul. I'm your companion. I'm here for you. The church needs people like that. Those of you who have been here for years, companions of one another, brothers and sisters of one another, sticking it out through the thick and the thin. There's people who have been at this church for 60 years, and there's been hard times, and you've stayed a companion of this body. Thank you. Praise the Lord for your faithfulness, for your companionship. And there's probably some who are newer to this church who 30 years down the road, you'll still be here. You'll be a faithful companion to this body of Christ. And to be sure, we're in a good season right now, but every church goes through good seasons and bad seasons, right? There's going to come a day when, when God tests us, and it's harder to see the fruit of what he's doing. And some of you are going to stick it out through that time. Thank you in advance for being a companion of your brothers and sisters, a companion of the body. Aristarchus gives us a picture of that. John Mark. John Mark is the restored. And we'll talk about this. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. John Mark, what we know about John Mark is he got, in, in the book of Acts, in uh, Acts chapter 15, we see John Mark and Paul, the apostle Paul, have a conflict, and they go separate ways. Something happened, we don't know exactly what happened, but there's, that's why I love the Bible. It's so real. It's so um, normal. Paul, an apostle, and John Mark, another leader in the church or aspiring leader in the church, they have a conflict. Have you ever had a conflict with a brother or sister? Or a brother or sister in Christ? Or in the church? Ever had conflicts? And sometimes we have conflicts and both people love Jesus and no one's necessarily doing anything wrong, but we just have a difference of philosophy of how we do things. And sometimes we go separate ways and that's okay. We don't, obviously we're not all in the same church, right? There's churches meeting all around our city right now, worshiping Jesus. Praise God for them. And so the only mark of Christian unity isn't that we're always together, that we always see eye to eye. But what we see in John Mark is restoration. 
So in Acts 15, we see this, this division. We see something happen between Paul and John Mark that causes them to go on separate paths. You can read about that later. I'm not going to go there and read there now, but they go their different ways. But what we see in John Mark is that he ends up being restored. They don't sweep the conflict under the rug. They don't ignore the conflict. Paul and John Mark don't go their separate ways for the rest of their existence. We know this because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul references John Mark to the church, to, to Timothy, the pastor he's writing to, and he says that John Mark is useful in ministry. 2 Timothy was written three or four years after, um, after the book of Colossians. And so here in Colossians, we already know that Paul is now saying, right, right here he says it in verse 10, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and then in parentheses, look what he says, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. There's like this, there's like this um, rumor going on around John Mark. And so Paul writes about him and he says, if he comes to you, welcome him. We're okay. We worked out our conflict. I know that if he comes to you and I don't put that in there in parentheses, you're going to wonder, can we trust John Mark? Can we welcome him in? It's believed that John Mark ditched Paul on a missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, and that Barnabas stuck up for John Mark while Paul said he ditched us, he abandoned us, he left us high and dry, I don't trust him anymore. And so there's this rumor going on around the churches that John Mark can't be trusted, that he abandoned Paul in, a, in the middle of a missionary journey. Any of you been abandoned by someone in a time of need? Do you usually have good things to say about them? Or do you usually warn people, hey, when things got tough, they ditched me? Unlike Aristarchus, who was the companion who stayed there, John Mark said, this is, this is dangerous, this is risky, I'm out. I'm heading home. And so what Paul is doing here in parentheses, he's saying, if John Mark comes to you, welcome him, receive him. That's what he says here in Colossians. And then in 2 Timothy, he says that he's useful in ministry. So John Mark gives us a picture of a man who's been restored. His relationship to Paul has been reconciled. They've worked it out. Some of you may, may need to think about relationships in the church that you need to work it out. Where does God want to bring restoration? Where does God want to bring healing? Where does conflict need to be resolved? In premarital counseling, my wife and I often say that, that conflict isn't, isn't anything to be concerned about. There should be conflict in your relationship, in your marriage relationship, yes, and also in your church relationships, right? I mean, if there's not conflict, usually that's a sign that somebody's a doormat. Somebody's not actually sharing their true opinions, their true thoughts, their true feelings. The important thing is, can we resolve conflict in a godly way? Can we resolve conflict? Can we be restored? In John Mark, we see a picture of restoration, a picture of relational restoration, conflict resolution. And so I would just ask you this morning, does God bring to mind anyone in the church or in your family or in your neighborhood or in your place of work that you need to model the gospel by seeking restoration, by working it out? And maybe that means that you're never going to fully see eye to eye and be partners in deep anything together, but at least get on the same page where you can say, you know what, we don't agree on this, but I care for them. Here, in this example, the gospel actually brings them back together. John Mark is restored. Maybe you're a person who's a restorer or needs to be restored. Think and pray about that. Barnabas, he's the encourager, and that's Acts chapter 4 through 15. 
all through the book of Acts, we see Barnabas being an encourager. There's people in our, in our church who are encouragers. Thank you. Bless you. It's amazing to have people who are always sharing words of encouragement and joy and building one another up. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe that's not you. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Do you realize why Paul's listing different people? I think we need to seek to be as encouraging as we can, but you may never be the person who just naturally encourages everyone around you. Why are you in the body? Because someone else in the body does that really well. God's gifted them to do that. I think that's why Paul's giving us these different profiles. Barnabas, the encourager. Barnabas and Mark were cousins. And Barnabas, when Paul and John Mark split ways, Barnabas was sticking up for John Mark. Paul's like the the missional mind, like, we got to do this. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. We have the good news. We need to get it out. We can't wait for John Mark to, to, to pony up. And to get on board. He's, he's weak, he's tired, he's abandoning us. We don't have time. I gotta get the mission out. And Barnabas stays with John Mark and he says, all those things may be true, but I'm gonna stick with him. I'm gonna encourage him. And I'm gonna build him up so that later on in the history of the early church, Paul can write that, Barnab- that John Mark and I are cool now. Why are they cool now? Maybe it's because Barnabas stuck with John Mark as an encourager. Saying, hey, I know, I know Paul made you feel a little bit beat up and a little bit weak and a little bit tired. And some of that may be true. John Mark, you may need to grow up. You can't be ditching your brothers and sisters in trouble because we have the gospel. But you know what? It's okay. I'm going to help us get there together. Barnabas, the encourager. Next one, Justice, or his name is also Jesus. But can you just imagine him saying, just call me Justice. I don't want to confuse you. I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Um, call me justice. This is all we know about him. He's not referenced anywhere else in scripture. And Jesus, who is called justice. So maybe he's the unseen guy. Maybe he's the behind the scenes type of person who you don't really hear about, you don't really know about. There's value in that. Some of you are those type of people. You're just behind the scenes. You don't want your name to be known. You don't want to be called out. Um, I'm going to start calling some of you out right now just to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm, I kid. Um, we need those people in the church. Those who are just saying, I, I want to serve. Where's the need? I don't care what my gifts are. Just where's the need? I'll fold bulletins for a couple weeks if you need that. Sure. No one has a spiritual gift of breaking crackers for communion. That's not a spiritual gift. It's not in the Bible. It's not on any gift assessments. It's just a way to serve. And yet there's people who faithfully Set up communion behind the scenes, unseen, unknown, unheard of. Praise the God, praise God for those type of people. Maybe that's you. Serve in that capacity with joy and with faithfulness. Next, we have Epaphras, the prayer. Put that in parentheses because prayer is not really a word. Um, but Epaphras is the prayer, he's the one who's always praying. We see this here, verse 12 Epaphras, who is one of you. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you. So Epaphras is from Colossia. It's believed that he might be the pastor of this church. And if you look at um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, that'll give you a little more context for that idea. But he's potentially the pastor of this church. And Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you? So right now he's with Paul. He's not in Colossia now. He's probably on a missionary journey. But he cares for this church. He pastors this church. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you? A servant of Christ greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you, may mis- 
that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. I love that. How does Epaphras pray for the church? He doesn't pray that their leg pain would be taken away. Though, sometimes we can pray for those things. Don't hear me saying it doesn't matter about our physical state. But he's praying specifically, more so than circumstances, he's praying that the church would be empowered through the Holy Spirit to stand mature, built up in Christ, mature in Christ. This is an incredible leader. He's praying that this family, that this body would be mature, that they would grow up into all things Christ. And I love the next part of this prayer, and that they would be fully assured in all the will of God, that they would know what God has called them to, that they would know what God is asking them to do, that they would know that their salvation is secure, that they would have assurance of salvation, that they would know that they know that they know that they are saved, that they are loved, that they are redeemed by God through the person of Jesus Christ. What an incredible prayer. Some of you are prayer warriors. You're praying for the church. You've been praying for the church, church for years, and you will continue to pray for the church for years. Thank you. We need you. Let me ask you, would you pray that we would, as a church, stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God? What a beautiful prayer. And I think it's this prayer idea that we get in Colossians chapter 1. Actually, flip over there with me. We'll look at it. Colossians chapter 1, 7 and 8, we'll hear about Epaphras again and hear the kind of prayer that's associated with him. Colossians 1, verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. So Paul is proclaiming to them the truth of the gospel and he's saying just as you learned it from Epaphras. That's why it's thought that Epaphras is potentially the pastor of this church. He's teaching them the truth of the gospel. He's our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, now capture this prayer that Paul prays, but it's similar to the type of prayer that Epaphras prayed. He says, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What a prayer. Paul and Epaphras aren't praying for changed circumstances. Again, we can pray for those. Sometimes we should pray for that. But ultimately, deeper underneath our circumstances, we ought to be praying that we would stand fully mature. This is back in chapter 4, verse 12. That we would stand fully matured in all the will of God and fully assured. What a beautiful prayer. Pray that for one another. Prayer warriors, please write those verses down and start praying those for our church how desperately we need to be matured and to grow in full assurance of the will of God. That's far better than earthly circumstances. And earthly circumstances can flow out of that. We can pray for earthly circumstances out of that. But how much better for our church to stand fully assured of spiritual circumstances of what's true. That's Epaphras. Next, we have Luke, the thorough. So in here, verse 14, Paul calls him the beloved physician. Luke is a physician. I think in order to be a physician or to be a doctor, you need to be a thorough type, right? You need to care about the body. You need to care about how it works. You need to care about details. In order to administer um, uh, a, a prescription, you need to care. You need to pay attention to details. Luke is that kind of man. He's a detailed man. I almost put meticulous in there, uh, but I think that has a little more negative connotation, right? 
thorough. Luke is thorough. He's also meticulous. He pays attention to details. We need people like that. The church desperately needs people who are thorough, who are thinking through things. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In both of those books, he, write, he starts by saying that I have, I have written an orderly account. He's the doctor. He's the thorough one. He's the meticulous one. He's paying great attention to the details. And he's writing down the details. He's making a manual. He's helping the church to know what's true and right and good. To you thorough people, thank you. I'm far from thorough. And so we probably see things a little bit differently but I thank God for you, and we, meet, we need more thorough people, people in our church. Praise God that there are people who are thorough in the church. Next, we have Demas, the defector. So you want to be like Luke, you don't want to be like Demas. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So here in this passage, Paul is saying, right now, Demas is a part of the group. He's a part of the crowd. He's, he's in the core. Like Judas, he was believed to be a follower of Jesus. But later on, again, two or three years after this book was written, the book of 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says that Demas abandoned them for the love of the world. He's a defector. He leaves the church. He abandons the faith. He walks away from Jesus because he loves the world. Don't be a Demas. Don't defect Stay in the gospel, believe the gospel, apply the gospel, stay in the church. When times get tough, when things are hard, when you lack understanding, don't chase the world. I mean, the world has a lot that it seems to offer, right? It, earlier on in, in Colossians, we talked about counterfeit teaching, counterfeit pleasure, and counterfeit something else. Um, the world offers us counterfeits, and, and it looks appealing to the eye, does it not? The world has much to offer that looks appealing. Demas followed it. He had, he had one foot in the church and one foot in the gospel and one foot in the world, and the world won out. Jump all in. Don't be a Demas. Don't run away from the gospel. Don't back out of the church. Don't follow worldly passions like Demas did. He's the one black sheep in this passage. And again, I love the, the story of the Bible. He's not even a black sheep in this passage. In this passage, he's a part of the group. And only a few years down the road do we know that he defected, that he abandoned the faith. And so stay, remain, stay close. Next one is the nympha. This is a lady mentioned in the passage, and she's the host. Look at verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. She opens up her home and she welcomes the church into her house that they would worship Jesus, encourage one another, build relationship. She must have financial means to have a home. And she uses her home for the good of the gospel, for the, for the joy in the gathering of the church. Maybe you're a type who opens up your home. And if you live in St. Louis Park, you probably don't have a ton of home to open. But yet you do it. Thank you. Community group leaders, thank you. Those houses can be packed. Thank you for opening up your home. Thank you for welcoming people in. When you open up your home, you're opening up your life. I mean, our world is so divided. Our relationships, the avenue for relationships are often through social media. And in opening up your home, you're having people in and you're letting them see you in your vulnerable, safe place. That's how we make disciples. We open up our home. And so Nympha here opens up her home. Us as a church, let's open up our home to one another. Let's, let's host people. 
Let's allow them into our lives. And then the last one, this is a little bit of speculation here. Archippus, the intern. Um, I don't really know that he's an intern. I am fairly confident that he's a younger man in ministry who's growing up into ministry. And you can see that in Philemon chapter 1, verse 2. Actually, there's only one chapter in Philemon. It's just easier for reference to say 1, 2. Um, Philemon chapter verse 2 will tell us a little bit more about Archippus. But verse 17 here says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. There's an encouragement to a younger man stepping up into ministry to fulfill the ministry. God's called you, God's gifted you, God has put you in a place of ministry, now fulfill it. Run the race with perseverance. Do what God has asked you to do. And that doesn't have to be an official intern position. It could be anyone who's younger to the faith or younger to a leadership role. And I think we have the profile here of a young person in ministry and an older person in ministry is saying to you, do your job well. See to it that you fulfill the ministry that you've received. And who did that ministry, who was it received from? The Lord. So anyone serving in a ministry role in our church, and maybe you're new to that ministry role, we didn't assign you and put you there. The Lord did. The Lord opened up this role for you to step into, and Paul would say to you, fulfill that ministry. It's from the Lord. It's given by the Lord. And so in the power of the Spirit, fulfill that ministry. So these are the profiles. What about you? Where do you fit in? Maybe one of those profiles covers the way that you're wired. Maybe one of those profiles connects with you and you think, you know what, I'm the faithful one. At least I want to be. And, and all of this is transformed by Jesus, right? That's, what, that's the glory of the gospel. It's not these people in their own power bringing their faithfulness, bringing their companionship, bringing their whatever all the things were, the, ho- the, the thoroughness. It's not them in their own power and wiring, but it's a transformed version of them. It's them being who God created them to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. God has created each one of us differently and uniquely. He's wired us and he's given us his spirit. And so may we serve the Lord in the church well with that. Who are you? How has God gifted you? How has God wired you? There's two ways to discover this. The first and best way is to be in a community, to be in the church, to try. You'll try some things and you'll fail. Some of you, if you try to preach, it's just not going to work well. And some of you, if you try to do administration, it's not going to work well. I've tried. It doesn't work well. Some of you are just natural encouragers. and, And as you're in a community, people will affirm that. So be in a community, commit yourself to a community, and as a community, let's encourage one another and call out one another's gifts. When you see people using their gifts, call it out and say, hey, thank you for using your gift of administration so well. Thank you for being such a great encourager. Thank you for being so faithful. I don't, I've never heard a word out of you, but I see you every single week, so you must be faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness. Who are you? How has God wired you? That's the best way to discover it. Another way is you could take a spiritual gifts assessment. There's a free one online from this church. Um, write that down if you've never done something like that. That'll, all that will do is confirm what you either were suspicious about or what other people have confirmed about in you. That would be a great way for you to just discover how has God wired me and what contribution do I have to make to the church for God's glory and the good of his gospel. And then ultimately... I just want to land the plane here. It's less about what we do and more about who we are. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, verse three. 
says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The good news for you is that your old life of sin and your old life of using your gifts for selfish worldly pleasure and passions and pursuits is dead. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's made you new. And you can use how God has wired you. You can use the gifts that God has given you for his glory and the building of his church. Paul goes on to say in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord. As we're transformed, our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. He's made us new. And so now we can go and we can serve in the church and outside of the church, working heartily for God, not for man. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. You faithfully use what God has given you to build up the gospel, to go into the world with the good news because Jesus is good news for everything. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just, um, we're, we're going to let the gospel sink into our hearts through a time of communion. And so, if you believe Jesus, if you've received Jesus, the elements are for you. The cracker represents his body broken for you. And the, blood represent, the, the cup represents his blood shed for you. And it's in him that we can say with confidence that our life is hidden with Christ in God. We've been made new. And so the elements are going to come out as, as you take it. I just ask that you would just preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the good news. And if you believe in Jesus, take the elements as a reminder of who he is and what he's done for you. As you receive the elements, take them as you feel ready. And uh, in the song that we're going to sing is just a great reminder for us of, of what the gospel is and what the gospel does for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done. We thank you for the good news that we have. We thank you that we have a Savior, that we have been redeemed from our sins, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. I pray that you would transform us, continue to transform us, and send us out into the world as neighbors and witnesses of this good news and help us to interact with one another as, as representatives of the good news. Lord, I thank you for equipping us with different gifts, with different passions I pray that we would build one another up to maturity, that we would all stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God for your glory and the growth of your church around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.